This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to James Rini from 500 Startups Japan, where we discuss the evolution of the Japanese startup ecosystem and his perspectives on payment startups versus banks and whether ICOs will displace the venture capital industry. Hi, James. Hey, Bernard. How's it going? I'm good. How are you in Japan? I'm doing excellent. And I'm talking to James Rini, head of 500 Startups Japan. Since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Uh, let's see. We spoke, what, it was about a year and a half ago? Yep, that's right. So since then, well, we launched the 500 Japan Fund. We were originally targeting a $30 million close, but fortunately we were actually oversubscribed. So we closed at $35 million. Since then, we've invested in 23 companies. And that's across a number of sectors, everything from logistics SaaS to uh, satellite data transmission infrastructure. So we've been, uh, we've been quite active in a number of spaces. Not so much in AR and VR, which we last spoke, did you? We've done one VR investment. We are actually talking to one more, but we're treading a little bit more carefully these days in that area, just simply because the install base hasn't picked up as much as we'd like. So, you know, there's an addressable market issue that is an obvious question. It's the elephant in the room when it comes to AR, VR. Since you are a venture capitalist these days, I want to ask them only one question before I get to the main subject of the day. What's your daily routine like as a venture capitalist in Japan? <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not that interesting. There's a few things. I mean, as everyone says, uh, every VC will say that every day is quite different. But some things that are consistent, at least in my, my daily schedule, is that I'm actually I'm an early bird. So I wake up at 5.30 a.m., I hit the gym, I read the news, and then I you know go about my day. And when, when we were fundraising, obviously, a lot of that time was committed towards actually pitching. So I was on the pitching side. But, you know, since we've closed, we've been mainly focusing on being pitched at and also helping our portfolio companies with whatever they need. And do you find that your time is split between deal sourcing and actually managing and helping startups within your portfolio? Yeah, I mean, on, on the deal sourcing side, we've been fortunate to have a lot of it actually inbound. That's attributed to two things. One is that we are very, very aggressive about publishing content here in Japan. I would say that we are probably the most active VC in terms of publishing content. And that's actually generated a lot of deal flow for us. On the Also, because we've invested in 23 companies now, and I think we've had a pretty good standing with our, with our current founders, a lot of them actually introduced deals to us. So we've been in a fortunate position where we don't really have to spend that much time on, on sourcing. Okay, so which comes to the main subject of the day, I want to talk to you about 500 Startups and Japan Startup Ecosystem. I'm aware that 500 Startups Japan now has a team and recently, as you have mentioned, closed around for your LPs. And one of them I know is the Japan Government Fund. Can you talk a little bit about your LPs and who have funded the 500 Startups Japan Fund then? Sure. The ones that are disclosed are Mizuho Bank, Mitsubishi Estate, Nikon, or from, for those of you outside Japan might know it as Nikon, Cool Japan Fund, and Mixi. So the biggest are Mizuho Bank and Cool Japan Fund. Wow, that's a pretty good, interesting group of investors you have. It's a nice mix, yeah. What are the interesting investments you have made with 500 Startups? As you have mentioned, some of the companies in terms of verticals, but can you specifically talk about some of these companies in your portfolio? You know, there, there are ones that are just completely unsexy, but they still make money. And so for us, they're sexy. And then there's ones that are just sexy, sexy. So I guess I'll start with the sexy, sexy ones. There's a company we invested in called InfoStellar. And what they do is, you know, one of the challenges with 
with satellites or data transmission for your satellite is that you have an antenna to retrieve information, but because satellites orbit the Earth every 24 hours, particularly from Japan, you can only do transmission for about, let's say, 30 minutes or so. So the antenna is largely unused for the remaining time. And so what the uh, InfoStellar guys are trying to do is they're creating these kits and this sort of platform to create a sharing economy for these antennas. So theoretically, you could have 24-hour data transmission at a much, much cheaper price. That's pretty useful for telecommunications companies and also even for companies that deal with satellite images and remote sensing, I suppose. Right, exactly. So a huge potential. Another part of this thesis is that just like how SpaceX reimagined what it took to create a rocket and significantly reduce the cost, the same sort of thing is happening in the satellite space where there's these microsatellites. And there's a few startups like, for example, Planet Labs that are, that are driving that front. And so our, we have conviction that there are just going to be more and more satellites launched into space, and there's going to be more of a need to provide the underlying infrastructure to communicate with the satellites. That's pretty interesting because I've also seen companies that from Japan that actually get into satellites. For example, my friend Nobu who runs AstroScale and based in a couple of countries from US, Japan and Singapore. But coming back to the startups piece, what about the non-sexy startups that are actually generating money? <laughs> Not non-sexy, I guess a big one is Smart HR. And it, you might be familiar with maybe Namely, funded by Sequoia or Zenefits in the US. And so those basically providing HR SaaS. And so Smart HR is, a, is a, probably the leader uh, in Japan on HR SaaS. They've actually done quite well. And for us, I mean, it falls into creating a paperless world. And in Japan, if you've ever lived here or even just you know spent some time here, you'll notice that a lot of things are still done on paper. And so we feel like it's inevitable that a lot of those processes that are done on paper are just going to become software. And so it goes back to Mark Andreessen's, you know, software is eating the world slogan, right? So that that trend was a little bit late to come to Japan. And we, we think that there's a lot more opportunities in that space. You, you reckon that the Japanese will actually give up the culture of writing on paper? Because every year I've been to Japan, I've always seen a lot of <laughs> notebooks. I've actually bought a lot of notebooks from Japan for myself to actually keep it as to record some of the things I think about and or new ideas that I have. So <laughs> I'm just really curious to know whether that would actually substitute, be substituted away. <laughs> well, it's happening. It's happening slowly but surely. I, I still remember when I was at DNA, we were using Conquer for some of the expensing. And yet I still had to fill out this form on paper. It was pretty ridiculous. I mean, so yeah, there is sort of this obsession with paper here, but, but SmartHR seems to be getting over that. So a lot of the processes are still done on software with, uh, with SmartHR. That's probably interesting. But what I want to ask you is, how has the Japanese startup ecosystem evolved in the past two years since we last spoke? Well, it's, it's continued to grow. And in fact, in 2016, uh, you might have heard that we reached a 10-year high. And so it crossed roughly the $2, the $2 billion mark for amount of uh, venture invested into Japan. And just you know, anecdotally, we're aware of many, many funds that have either closed or are in the process of closing and so, you know, we, there's not much data on this, but we believe that there's actually a lot more capital available for entrepreneurs to come. So 2017 might be an even bigger year. Our goal is to, we, we believe that we can increase that number from 2 billion to 10 billion, actually. If you consider the fact that in the U.S., about maybe 70 billion to 90 billion is invested, and considering the GDP, relative GDP, I think in Japan, we should definitely be at least the $10 billion mark. 
And that comes to this interesting article that I've seen on your blog, is that do Japanese startups with global ambition need to speak English? Now, given Rakuten is one of the first companies that pushed English to be their first language years back, have you seen other Japanese corporations to be the same? There are, there are very few, to be honest with you. So uh, Infostellar, one of our companies, is fits that profile quite well. I mean, they're in the space business. So space, I mean, just in Japan is just not a big, uh, big enough market. So fundamentally, they have to be global. So they've done a great job on that. Unfortunately, I don't know that there are that many other examples, in fact, outside of our portfolio that I know of. I know that there are founders that speak English, obviously, but you know, if if you ask me whether their their company's internal language is English, I, I'm pretty hard pressed to to come up with some examples. Do you foresee that more and more Japanese startup founders would would be English speaking as well, given that they need to scale out of the Japanese market? Yeah, I mean, one thing that I have noticed, and I don't know whether this is simply because we you know, we launched a Silicon Valley style fund in Japan, and now I'm noticing it, but there seem to be a lot more English-speaking founders starting up these days. And so the reason that's that's notable is because, you know, frankly, bilingual talent in Japan is, is pretty scarce. And so anybody that's bilingual has it pretty good career-wise. So if you're a, you have a certain level of aptitude and you're bilingual, a lot of the foreign companies will be willing to hire you and actually pay you quite well. And so there's this sort of satisfaction with the status quo. And this lack of, you know, this sort of encouragement from a environment standpoint to to go out and challenge yourself. And so these days we're actually seeing uh, a lot more of that sort of high spec talent pursuing entrepreneurship instead. So that's a good thing. So this is probably going to be a really interesting trend moving forward, given that that you think that Japan ecosystem should be at least giving out at least 10 billion of uh, venture capital investment. Uh, per year. So I'm pretty curious to talk to you. You wrote this interesting piece on TechCrunch entitled, There's a War Brewing in Japan and the banks should pay attention. But I would like to talk about the piece in a few points. So the first thing I wanted to ask you is that people refer to the term time machine model in Japan. Can you describe what is it about? Yeah, so time machine model is basically taking a model that's proven or a quote-unquote proven. Proven has many definitions, but maybe somewhere, someplace like Sequoia has led Series A round. Taking that concept and localizing it and launching it in whatever country it is. So Rocket, Rocket Internet is the best example of that, but that, you know, that happens all over the world and it's not just from Rocket. I think we have been seeing this much more prevalent in the last couple of years. And I think Mark Suster, who from both sides of the table, termed this global warming because the models actually were proven and work in US, for example, like Uber, you see the equivalence of that in China, Didi, Grab in Southeast Asia, Ola in India. And of course, that becomes a pretty interesting model. So one point that you brought up was about Flipboard and Flipboard led to the rise of two companies. One is called Smart News and Ganuzi. Can you talk about these two startups? How did they manage to raise huge amounts of funding and then created a war between both of them? So yeah, I mean, uh, you know, same, same thing in the US. For a little while, there was a plethora of news startups and Flipboard was the most notable one. So shortly after that, the same thing happened in Japan. And so Ganuzi and Smart News were the ones that got the most traction and also the most funding. There's still, I mean, I think the debate is still out. From a user retention point of view, smart news has been better, but in terms of monetization and execution, at least speed-wise, Gnosi has been pretty pretty incredible within a short amount of time. There's not really a winner, but Gnosi has already IPO'd. So from that perspective, they've at least reached an exit. 
And Smart News is still a private company. I think they have just only raised, I think, Series C or D of their fundraising round yet, right? Right, that's right. But from a absolute funds raised perspective, I believe it's about similar. I thought the side question is interesting because after I seen Smart News, then there was this app in China that's now raised a great deal of attraction called Toutiao. It seems that they are all evolving from what Smart News have done in Japan before it got into China. So do you also see this kind of time machine model being mutated because localized into the local markets that they found a different business model as what their traditional US counterparts would have been? Right. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely the case, right? I mean, I think that there are a lot of people, particularly in Silicon Valley, that tend to look down on this sort of copycat type of strategy. But the reality is that the R&D process is ongoing. And so the initial you know, con- concept phase, a lot of that might come from Silicon Valley. But in terms of the localization piece of it, and then at some point, the copycats actually start to innovate a lot faster. And so a perfect example, or another good example is, for example, WeChat. So WeChat's the same thing. There was, there was a time when you know, Facebook Messenger was copying a lot of features, and then even, even Line became copying a lot of features. So I think that what tends to happen is that the initial stages might be copied, the sort of seed of the idea, but over time, the concepts become a lot more uh, separate. And so the same thing in China with uh, their news app, right? So I, I have talked about that piece that you have written and there was a part of, after the issue of the news wars between Smart News and Ganusi, you talk about the similar war that is now showing up for mobile P2P payments in Japan. Can you talk about what is that about and why should banks pay attention to what's going on in the Japan startup world then? Sure. So regarding the mobile P2P, a lot of people in the US are probably familiar with Venmo and there's a few others out there. That happened quite a while ago and recently has been picking up more and more. So mobile P2P payments in the US has grown significantly in the past few years. And in Japan, although Line tried to get a head start on that front and probably in the wake of, uh, of WeChat, unfortunately, it hasn't picked up as quickly here. But there have been some startups that have been emerging that are uh, trying to take this piece and basically the Venmo of Japan. Now, mobile P2P payments in and of itself, because the margins are so thin, it's unlikely to become a sustainable business on its own until it reaches really, really massive scale. But that's not what's important. So payments, payments, it's payments itself is, is an engagement feature, right? It's something that you do basically every day. Once you have a lot of engagement, you can offer other traditional banking services on top of that. And so the reason that's such a threat in Japan for for the banks uh, here is that the banks have not had a whole lot of really tough competition from startups. And so their apps and their websites and everything, like they're just so, so inept at creating user consumer products. And so is lack any innovation in that space. And so when you know what we've seen recently is that there are a lot more formidable startups emerging in Japan and are able to raise quite a bit of money. And so they're getting traction on their own. And at some point, they're probably going to overlap with banks quite a bit. And so unless banks in Japan start to move quickly on this, whether that's through building you know tech teams in, in-house or going through the acquisition side, they're going to have to do something in order to make sure that their business is not disrupted. One of these Japanese mobile P2P startups that you talk about that are actually getting interesting traction in Japan? Mobile P2P startups, the big ones right now are Cash with a K. Another one is 
Paymo. So Paymo is actually started by the same CEO of Gunosi, which you, which you might recall for these news apps. Some other competitors are LinePay. And then another one would be Yoropay. But Yoropay is, uh, is pretty behind, at least in terms of the fundraising side. I suppose that Japan will have its own financial regulation as of when one of these players becomes big and actually has the capability to start duplicating banking services from the traditional banks, would regulators step in then? You know, it's a good question. Obviously, regulation is one of the bottlenecks, but at least in Japan, there's been a lot of movement on the regulatory side. So I actually would not be too concerned about that. I mean, what tends to happen is that regulation follows consumer demand. One thing that's particularly important to note is that in the US, there's, there are already success cases. And so that makes it a lot easier for regulators in Japan to point to that as a precedent to change laws. I wouldn't be worried about that too much. I think it's basically inevitable that the, the laws are going to change to create an environment where startups can thrive. This is probably very interesting. So recently, there's a lot of attention on initial coin offerings or what we call ICOs with Bancor raising 153 million, 10x raising 80 million, and Omis, a 500 startups company, raised 25 million. So do you see the possibility that venture capital firms be replaced by ICOs? Of course, the regulators are coming anyway. No. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, I wrote that blog post a little while ago, and that was actually before the SEC came out with their, their position on it. And so clearly, as I mentioned in the post, regulators are, are sniffing around. And so the reason that ICOs kind of ran rampant and it was so easy to raise capital was largely because of the lack of regulation in the space. Now, ICOs obviously provide a lot of innovations that are you know, make it a lot easier for entrepreneurs to raise money and also potentially make it a lot easier for actually fund managers like us to raise money as well. But they're going to run into similar hurdles that you run into in the traditional fundraising space with things like, you know, make sure, uh, accredited investor verifications and these kinds of things. So I think it's hard to believe that it will completely disrupt, so to speak. But obviously, it's something that we need to be mindful of because it does change a lot of the dynamics for venture capital. In fact, I think today Singapore just clarified as well as if you want to do an ICO, you need to come with a prospectus like what traditional IPOs are. So I think even Singapore government is also coming in with uh, clarifications on how ICO should be conducted even within the country itself. Looking forward, what are the interesting verticals that you'll be watching out next in Japan and elsewhere in Asia? That's a good question. I'm still trying to figure it out myself, but some of the things that we've looked at recently, we continue to invest heavily in SaaS. We just think that there's just so many SaaS opportunities here that have largely been untapped. Another thing that's uh, interesting about Japan is that I think, you know, historically, startups have kind of been a young, young man's game. And these days, we're seeing a lot more guys in their 30s or 40s starting companies. And the reason that's notable is because for consumer side, you know, you might need a 20-something to come up with some of the social social apps, like things like that. But when it comes to more regulated industries or B2B type of areas, when it comes to that, you're going to need a network. You're going to need to be able to recruit talent. You're going to be able to, you're going to have to navigate through all sorts of regulatory hurdles. And so we actually see a lot of blue ocean in the some more like legacy businesses in Japan. So we're interested in, in not only SaaS, but also insurance, healthcare, and these kinds of areas, because we just think that there just haven't been that many startups that have been attacking this space historically. James, it's always been a pleasure to get you on the show to talk about the Japanese startup ecosystem, and we'll probably get you back again. So help my audience, how do they find you? 
You can find me on Twitter. I'm at James underscore Riney, R-I-N-E-Y. And then you can also feel free to shoot me an email, james at 500.co. You can find me at blongcw.bernalong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, ACAS, and uh, TuneIn. And of course, Google Play in the US market. Of course, tweet to me, recommend us on Overcast, and give us a five-star ratings on iTunes Store, definitely. So once again, James, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Bernard. It's always a pleasure.